Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all. Kids, it's great to have you here. It's so great to have you here. It's great to have all those who maybe this is your first time back with us in person, or maybe you're just tuning in online, uh, perusing the spiritual marketplace, as it were, and you stumbled across us. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Romans. Uh, We've just come through a series entitled Deep Roots, where we considered what is entailed in living as a creative minority for Jesus, putting down our roots deeply into God and his love and the gospel. And, And now it's appropriate that we enter into a book, which among the books of scripture really has a way of bringing us deeply into the gospel. The book of Romans throughout the ages has been a book God has used to encounter people and draw draw them to himself in a fresh way. From John Wesley to St. Augustine uh, and people like Martin Luther. In fact, Martin Luther described Romans as purest gospel. And get this, he even encouraged his congregation to memorize the entire book word for word. Isn't that awesome? So get ready. I'm just kidding. We're not going to be doing that, but we are going to be spending some time in in this book this fall and then again in the new year. And I just want to comment as you do get a Bible out because we will be looking at the text. Uh, I've called this a book and sometimes we call this a book of the Bible, but if you open to Romans chapter one, which is where we're going to be reading from today, chances are in your Bible, it says the letter to the Romans or the letter of Paul, or if you have an old Bible, it'll say the epistle to the Romans. Uh, And that's really just telling us that um, this is not a theological essay that dropped out of heaven. This is a letter. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. It was a church that, as we're going to find out, he hadn't even visited yet. He didn't even know them personally, but he was writing them with a purpose. Yes, he wanted to strengthen their faith with a deep exposition of the gospel. Yes, he wanted to speak into some issues they were experiencing around unity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But even more, he wanted to prepare the ground for him to come to them. You see, Paul had a big trip planned. He wanted to go from where he was in Palestine to Rome and to kind of be in Rome for a bit and then launch out from Rome to bring the gospel all the way to Spain. And so he writes this letter with all these motives in mind. So I invite you, please have a Bible out. We're going to be reading Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 911. So let's give ear, because what we're going to hear is God's word. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, We received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. 
and you also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit and preaching the gospel of his son is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times and I pray that now at last by God's will, the way will be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, or from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come upon us? Even as you inspired Paul to write this letter, so would you illumine our hearts and minds now to receive what you want to say to us. Lord Jesus, stand in our midst as the crucified and risen Lord, Show yourself to us and empower us to live for you in this moment, we pray in your mighty name, amen. This past summer, my son Eli was doing what he often does. He likes to get outside, he loves to get dirty, and he was exploring and adventuring by the river behind our house. And wouldn't you know it, About a couple hours later, he comes bursting through the front door, just elated. He is so happy. He has such good news to share to us. He has found three huge slugs. They were called leopard slugs. And I kid you not, these are the biggest slug you can find in our corner of the world. They're about this long. And so he comes bursting through the front door with good news. And I was not so sure it was good news. Um, You know, these new pets coming into my home. And Paul is writing this letter with that same kind of feeling. He's bursting through the front door. He's got good news to share with with us and with the church at Rome. This news he calls the gospel of God. And he has every reason to be excited about it because this gospel is life-changing. And what we're gonna do today is focus on this gospel because really this gospel is central to the letter. It's also central to the thesis of the letter which we find in verses 16 and 17. So today, very simply, we're going to consider the substance of the gospel. We're gonna consider the power of the gospel and the mechanism of the gospel. The substance, the power, and the mechanism. So first, the substance. What is the gospel? That's a very churchy word that we often you know, share in church and we just assume everybody knows it. But the word gospel comes from a Greek word. The word is euangelion, and it means good news, or it means a joyful announcement. 
So in Paul's day in the Roman Empire, when a new Caesar was born or came to power, what they would do is they would send out good news. They would send out a joyful proclamation. Caesar so-and-so is born. He is whatever, all these titles and the son of God, etc. Caesar had all these titles and they would announce the good news of the new Lord, the new Kyrios. And notice how in this opening letter to the church that lives in the central hub of the Roman Empire, Paul takes those titles, Lord. He takes the title, Son of God. And he says, it's Jesus. He says it's Jesus. And by implication, that would mean Caesar is not Lord. Can you imagine? It's a a subversive message to speak into the heart of the Roman Empire. In verse three, he says this gospel is regarding his son. It's, It's about Jesus. Jesus is the substance of the gospel. It says he was a descendant of David. That means he's from the kingly line. He, he's a king. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, isn't it often the case that today the gospel is treated as some kind of private thing that Christians nurse in their hearts, right? It's like a, a nice quaint thought to help you get through the day but it doesn't have much substance. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel is a cosmic claim. The gospel is a cosmic claim about the lordship of Christ. It's about the purpose of the entire world and the goal of our own lives. And in Paul's day, let's just put ourselves in the shoes of of those Roman Christians receiving this letter. In Paul's day, in that society, you actually could get into a lot of trouble for following Jesus. Because if you lived as if Jesus is Lord, in a society organized around the gospel of Caesar, it got you into trouble. You couldn't just keep your faith private. Because in society, you would actually have to go out and worship Caesar. There was this whole cult around the emperor You would have to say Caesar is Lord and offer a sacrifice or you'd have to go with your family to to the pagan temples and offer sacrifices. You'd have to sacrifice to the gods of your trade guilds. Yes, plumbers would be like together and they had their own God and they had to like, you know, get in line with the spirituality of their trade guild. So when you decided to follow Jesus and give him your allegiance, it wasn't just a private thing. You were messing with the social fabric. You were messing with trade and commerce. And in fact, uh, the followers of Jesus get into trouble in the book of Acts because the merchants who are selling idols start to say, hey, like we're not making any money anymore because people are believing in Jesus and they're no longer buying our idols. This affected society. And you were messing with the unquestioned power of Caesar. This is why uh, a first century historian named Suetonius called the Christian movement a new and wicked superstition. A new and wicked superstition that is a danger to society. Friends, yes, Jesus is king of our hearts. But what the gospel announces is a such substance that he is the king of the world. Jesus is the king of the world. That's the substance of the gospel. It's Jesus Christ in his lordship. What about the power of the gospel? Look in verse 16 with me. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That word power there, the root for that word is actually where we get the word dynamite. Dynamite, think about that. The gospel isn't a weak message. It's an explosive message. It's dynamite. And it'll change your life if you let it. I mean, just think about it. How on earth did a movement that began with a small group of very afraid young men and women who were following Jesus and were wondering what to do next when Jesus was crucified, how did this small group become the largest and most impactful movement in human history? How did that happen? Was it because the powerful came on and took the gospel and in their power advanced it? No. It's because the power behind the gospel and the movement of Jesus was not human power. It's the power of God. It's the power of God for salvation. To not just a few people who follow the rules, right? It's not just the power of God to those few select people who follow the rules and are really good and have their lives put together. It's the power of God for all. I heard one person give a really good uh, definition of the Greek word all. Um, All means all, and that's all all means. All who believe. The gospel is for everyone. And so the power of the gospel does not lay hold in operating with the, the established power structures of the world. In fact, Roman was a very, Rome sorry, was a very cosmopolitan city, much like Toronto. Very diverse. It was a center of trade and finance. It was a center of culture and philosophy and a really hierarchical place. There was lots of powerful people there, but there were even more poor people struggling to get by. You know who the gospel reached first? It reached the poor. It reached the masses. Why? Because it's the power of salvation for all who believe. The gospel didn't discriminate and it doesn't to this day. It's for everybody. This is such good news for us. It was for the poor, the marginalized, men and women, children, freed, slaves. Yes, of course, the rich, but also their servants. It didn't matter. And the reason it became a societal revolution, the reason this became the largest movement in the history of the world is because it was first a revolution on the personal level of the heart. That the gospel came in and changed people. Because there's nothing so powerful as a changed life, right? I love how Mark Sayers summarizes this. He says, uh, their revolution was staged not in the theaters or the stadiums or the palaces, right? All the places of power. He says, instead, it was in the crowded streets, huddled apartment complexes. It's power on display in the lives of saints, ordinary saints, normal people, living out an extraordinary vision a radical reordered society of humans around the lordship of Christ. Isn't that good? What he's saying there is that the power of the gospel was and is on display in your life and in my life, the life of ordinary people whose lives have been transformed by this message. And then that power, when when this 
this band of people come together and start living in community as the church and they start to love one another and experience reconciled relationships and forgiveness and they start to share God's love with others, all of a sudden these this scattered Christians together become this community reorganized around the lordship of Christ and it displays the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Now let's consider the mechanism of the gospel. How how does the gospel become operative in our lives, right? How does this uh, joyful announcement about the lordship of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation, connect to our lives? Look in verse 17 with me. And I'll put it on the screen because I wanted this translation. It says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now in the Bible, righteousness here isn't talking about self-righteousness like judgy, uptight people. We're actually focusing in on God's righteousness. This is saying the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is talking about God's character, that he's good, that he's faithful, that he's upright, that he's loving. But even more, friends, it's talking about God's character in action. Because all along in the scriptures, the psalmists write about the righteous acts of God, namely that God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, namely that God continues to act to save people. That's the righteousness of God. And Paul is saying the gospel is revealing God's righteousness. In other words, we couldn't really get at it on our own. We couldn't get at who God is in his essence through our own philosophies or wisdom or knowledge. It had to be revealed to us from the outside and the gospel brings revelation, who God is and what he's done. And I wanna highlight two things about what happens when the righteousness of God is revealed. First, the righteousness of God sets out God's requirement. The righteousness of God sets out God's requirement. And secondly, the righteousness of God speaks of God's achievement. Requirement and achievement. Let's just parse these out. First, God's righteousness sets out God's requirement, right? Think about that word righteousness. Righteousness sets a standard, right, for how we live. And in the Bible, the standard of living righteously, to live in a way that reflects the righteous character of God is about obeying his law and following his ways. And what happens in our experience, right, as we choose to follow God is is our experience bears out the fact that we we fail a lot, right? (laughs) We don't do so good at meeting the requirement, Right? We don't love God with our whole heart. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We yell at our kids. We get mad at our wives. We, we yell at our husbands. We, we get bitter and vindictive on the inside. Right? You know what I'm saying. We fail. We fail to live the life God wants us to live. And let me just say, even if you're not religious, even if you're not a Christian, there is some definition of righteousness that you live by. Everybody lives from some kind of moral code, even if that code is, you know, common decency. Common decency. And whatever your code is, it comes with a requirement, right? If common decency is the code, then maybe the requirement is you gotta be kind, you gotta be tolerant and accepting, you know, 
Maybe the requirement is you need to be more productive. You need to perform in life. Or maybe the requirement is just to try and be a better person tomorrow than you were today. And let's be honest. Even those kinds of codes, we fail to meet the requirement. Or at least we don't do it all the time. We don't do it consistently. You're not always kind because that guy just cut you off in the 401 and bad things came out of your mouth. Right? We fail. And then on an even deeper level, we wonder why we find it so hard to live the life we know we ought to live in the first place. That, that there's somehow something wrong with us. That, that the biblical, what the Bible calls sin has actually infected us. And what the righteousness of God does is it helps us see our sin. It helps us know, I don't meet the requirement. I don't cut it. That's an important first step in how the gospel gets into us. We actually need to come to the point when we know, I can't do this. I don't have the power. I don't have the self-will. I can't muster it to live the kind of life I know I'm called to live. But convincing us of our sin is only the first step. Thanks be to God. God doesn't leave us there. Because God's righteousness also speaks of his achievement of righteousness for us. God's righteousness speaks of his achievement of righteousness for us. Look at verse 17 again. Notice that there is a transition. First, it's the righteousness of God to a righteousness that belongs to humans. It says, the righteous shall live by faith, quoting from the prophet Habakkuk, who foresaw a day when righteousness could be had by humans. That God would achieve something that you would think was unachievable, that was impossible. That you would be righteous. That you would be righteous. That I would be righteous. And note how it's a righteousness that comes by faith. This, this is the essence of what Paul is delivering to us in the gospel, that we enter into God's righteousness by faith, not by works of the law or the code of common decency, by faith. That's the mechanism of the gospel. And here's what faith really is. Faith is putting our trust, not in my righteousness, but in the righteousness of another. Faith is putting my trust in the righteousness of Jesus. First, we acknowledge that we fall short of the requirement. And second, we rejoice because we see that God has achieved the requirement for us on our behalf. And we enter in by faith. That's how the gospel becomes operational in our lives. That's, that's how God opens our eyes. That's how we start to live in the gospel. Now, I want to tell you two stories about two very different kinds of people. Um, and really, these two kinds of people are kind of like the kinds of people we find in the world. Maybe you can identify with one of these two people. The first is about a person who had so messed up his life that he didn't think there was any hope of salvation. At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And beside him are two criminals. And one criminal starts to shout at Jesus, hey, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, like, save us, save yourself. But the other criminal comes to Jesus' defense and he says, 
don't you fear God? He says, we're punished justly. He acknowledges we didn't meet the requirement. We're getting what we deserved. But this man has done nothing wrong. He sees the righteousness of Jesus at the same time that he sees his own unrighteousness. He knew Jesus didn't deserve to be hanging there, that somehow, mysteriously, Jesus was also there for him. This is the righteousness of God revealed as it, as it says in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This man hanging on the cross next to Jesus said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice how his only hope is Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus. And I mean, in that moment, was there anything this guy could do to make up for his sin? He was in the last minutes of his life. There was literally nothing, nothing he could do. And yet Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. This is a story that shows the power of the gospel and God's heart for sinners, God's heart for lost people, God's heart for people who are just stumbling along in life, trying to cobble it together. And he invites them to put their trust in him. See, in the gospel, our sin is put on Jesus' account and Jesus' righteousness is put on our account. It's what theologians have called the great exchange. That's what this is about. But let me tell you another story. It's actually the story of Paul. Paul has a story, and it's really the story of a person who was so confident in his own righteousness that he didn't think he needed salvation. Right? The first guy didn't think he uh, deserved salvation or had no hope of salvation. Paul didn't think he needed salvation. He had spent his entire life dedicated rigorously to observing the Jewish law. In his own words, he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, all-star quarterback, you know, uh, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But then Jesus encountered him. Then Jesus broke him down and showed him what the righteousness of God is all about and that the righteousness of God comes into our lives through faith, that our works can't save us. It's not because he followed the rules faultlessly. It's because of Jesus. Because even then, I think what happened with the apostle Paul is he, while you know, being perfect and checking off all the boxes, he realized that deep in his heart there was what? Hatred, <laughs> pride, murder, hostility, right? all this dirtiness. And what happened is he discovered he doesn't meet the requirement. That sin runs so much deeper than we think and that God's righteousness is so much higher than we can reach. And so it's only by faith in the righteousness of another that we can be righteous. And this gospel had, had such a powerful transformative effect in his life that he became one who would live fully for Jesus, one who would die for Jesus. And this is the gospel he was so eager to preach. The gospel had gone deep into him. That's my hope for us, that as we're entering into Romans, that the gospel will go deep into us. 
and that we would share it, that we would live it out, that people would see the power of God displayed in your life. So what about us? How do we move forward from here? If you're a sports fan, you've probably been watching the Blue Jays, right? Um, there's some heads nodding. And uh, I always find it amazing that pitchers can throw a ball at 100 miles an hour these days. It's insane. But I'm fascinated as the commentators will talk about the approach of the pitcher. And sometimes what you see is that when pitchers get themselves into a tough spot, say they walk a batter or it's a high leverage situation, what a pitcher will sometimes try to do is manufacture a little bit of extra power, right? Add a bit of English to it to add something extra to their pitch. And it's interesting to note that when they try to do that, they often miss. They overthrow. They throw themselves off because they're trying to add more of their own power to the equation rather than just relying on the innate power that's already there that they've been trained up in. And I think something like that can happen to us as, as you're walking with Jesus that if you feel like you're stuck or you find yourself under pressure or out of sorts, sometimes we try to find ways to manufacture power, right? To, to put a little more power into our living, whether it's a new diet, a, a new approach, a new technique. We look for that recipe that's going to be a quick fix to turn things around. We need to be reminded today that the gospel is the power of God. The simple gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who are believing. Are you believing this today? Are you believing this today? It's not the gospel plus. It's not the gospel and. It's just the gospel, plain and simple. Do we believe this? I believe that Jesus is asking us afresh today to receive his love to receive his grace and to believe in the simple message of the gospel that even at your worst, God is crazy about you. He died for you. And that when you trust in him, he takes away your sin and you get the righteousness of God all by grace. The gospel power that brought you into salvation is the same power that will bring you forward. Don't try to manufacture your own power. Come back, come back to the cross, come back to this simple gospel and put your trust in it. Put your trust in Jesus. Friends, do we believe this? We have the opportunity today to come to the Lord's table, to come to the place that, that is this sign and displays the gift of grace that is Jesus' death on the cross for our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. If you're watching at home, we're just gonna take one minute to transition and set up communion, and then we're gonna partake together. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.